Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. Today I'm here with Ava Soleimani, who is a PhD student in the Harvard Biophysics Program and at MIT, where she works with Professor Sangeeta Patia. Her thesis research focuses on engineering novel diagnostics for the early detection of cancer. In addition to her research, Ava is a lead organizer and lecturer for Introduction to Deep Learning, MIT's official introductory course on deep learning foundations and applications. She completed her Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Molecular Biology at MIT. Ava is the recipient of the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship, MIT's Henry Ford II Scholar Award for Exceptional Academic Achievement in Engineering, and MIT's AMITA Senior Academic Award for Academic Excellence by a Senior Woman at MIT. Ava, I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So today we'll be talking about some of your work on engineering novel diagnostics for the early detection of diseases. I'd love to start by talking about how you entered the space of technology development for disease diagnostics. Absolutely. When I was starting off in my PhD, uh, which is in the Harvard Biophysics program, I was really looking for an area where I would be able to integrate and bring together my interests in sort of experimental technology development with data science, machine learning, and statistics, as well as a motivation to drive these technologies towards clinical translation. And I found that Sangeeta Bhatia's lab, specifically her work in the diagnostic space, really fulfilled those criteria. And so it was a perfect opportunity for me to bring those different areas of interest together for my PhD. Definitely. And you and I share a major with computer science and molecular biology. How have you been able to draw upon that prior training and prior research experiences you've had? Yeah, so one thing that was unique about that major uh, that we both studied, computer science and molecular biology, I felt that it was really the parallel development of both those tracks and their integration that was key um, in my undergraduate training that I think really positioned me well for the work that I'm doing now. And to provide a little more specifics about some of the work I was doing um, as an undergraduate, I was actually working in fundamental synthetic biology with um, Professor Tim Liu, also at MIT. And the project that I was working on there was, uh, it involved engineering bacteria to be able to sense and respond to particular combinations or sequences of inputs from their environment. And what we were doing was we were using this idea of a state machine, which is a really fundamental concept in theoretical computer science, as sort of the guiding framework for how we were uh, building these functionalities into living systems, into these engineered bacteria. And what I really appreciated about that project was that it was a fantastic blend of you know, fundamental computational theory and experimental work. And I was kind of enamored by this idea of 
you know, tuning the knobs on a biological system such that Mm -hmm. it can sense and respond um, to its environment in a logical way, much as much as the way we program computers. And that concept was really something that I fell in love with um, in that project. And I wanted to take that and sort of move it towards something more clinically oriented in my PhD. And the work that I've been doing now in, in Sangeeta's lab, I think really sort of fits that description in that we're trying to develop these new diagnostic tools that can sense disease biomarkers and produce a a response that can be read out non-invasively to uh, actually achieve the diagnostic test. I would love to talk about what you referred to, and specifically, you've called them these activity-based diagnostics. And this is some of the work you've been doing in your PhD. What advantage do they provide compared to the traditional approaches for disease detection and monitoring, starting describing some of the key principles and necessities that exist for traditional diagnostics. Absolutely. To break that down, I think it's good to, you know, orient ourselves with what do we mean when we talk about a diagnostic test and how do we measure the performance of a diagnostic? And so I think when you, when most people think of a diagnostic, right, they think of something like a CT scan or an MRI some sort of imaging modality that can maybe pick up on indicators of disease within the body, like a tumor mass. In recent years, there's also been this new emergence of so-called molecular diagnostics, where what's involved there is taking a sample, a specimen from the individual, a blood sample, a nasal swab, a saliva specimen, and running some sort of molecular assay to measure what we call a biomarker that is associated with the presence of a particular disease. And so that kind of sets the stage of of what we talk about when we um, refer to traditional diagnostic approaches. And as far as the performance, I think really the two parameters and metrics that people talk about are the sensitivity and the specificity. And so when we talk about sensitivity, we're referring to how good is the diagnostic at picking up the presence of disease. And when we talk about specificity, we're referring to how good is the diagnostic at discriminating when um, disease is not there. So what is its false positive rate? And that's a really important metric because, you know, if you imagine you're screening a population of individuals, you don't want to be telling these people that they may, you know, have a have a particular disease when they in fact do not. And so it's really important that the diagnostic be highly specific and not um, result in a high rate of false positives. Right. And the work that I have done in Sangeeta's lab, um, as you mentioned, I think f- falls within this paradigm of activity-based diagnostics. And this is really a a new class of engineered tests that have uh, sort of taken off in recent years. And what the the commonality there is that these tests leverage the properties of enzymes and enzymatic activity 
in order to measure or produce biomarkers of disease. The core conceptual um, foundation behind these tests is this idea of engineered sense and respond, much like I was uh, referring to earlier. And I think what makes these this class of diagnostics so powerful is that enzymes are really a remarkable tool um, in, in molecular biology and in engineering. And that's because they have uh, properties that make them very well suited for use in these sort of engineered diagnostic systems. Specifically, right, enzymes, we know that they can function as catalysts. They have a particular substrate and they can act upon that substrate um, in a catalytic fashion. And we can leverage this property to actually achieve signal amplification. So if we're measuring a particular disease biomarker and using the property of an enzyme to um, produce some sort of measurable output, this can result in uh, a signal amplification effect, which can help improve the sensitivity of our diagnostic. And on the other side, with regards to specificity, enzymes are awesome in that you know, nature and evolution has tuned them such that they have this really exquisite um, specificity for their substrate and the ability to recognize and act specifically on those substrates. And so if we're smart about it, we can also um, use this property, these sorts of properties to uh, achieve high specificity with regards to our diagnostic test. Right. Absolutely. So it really sounds like this interest of yours in tuning biology can be employed quite effectively, not just for the sake of engineering biological systems, but to actually then use that and pair that with, as you're saying, amplifying a signal that can then be detected as a diagnostic. Exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Maybe using one example as the urinary detection of lung cancer in mice using non-invasive lung protease detection. Could you talk about the role that data science and maybe even machine learning have played in this work to develop activity-based diagnostics that are non-invasive? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll start by providing a little bit of background on sort of what the goal was with this project and what we were uh, aiming to achieve. So lung cancer um, specifically is a, is a disease where it's been shown through you know, large-scale randomized controlled um, trials that early detection and early inter- intervention as a result can, can significantly improve survival and have long-term survival benefits. And sort of the gold standard diagnostic or screening modality for lung cancer is low-dose CT, computed tomography, so an imaging-based test. Hmm. And really the primary limitation um, of these imaging tests is their specificity. So it can be subject to high false positive rates in that nodules that are in fact benign can be picked up via CT imaging. And so what we were seeking to do in this work was to address some of these limitations and to engineer one of these activity-based diagnostics that could be both uh, sensitive and specific in regards to its ability to detect 
lung cancer non-invasively and to perform preclinical validation of this diagnostic in mouse models of lung cancer. So the technology that we developed um, is a nanoparticle-based technology. So these are small particles that are on the order of tens of nanometers in size. And we engineered these nanoparticles to carry these short peptides on their surface. And these peptides can be recognized and cut by enzymes called proteases, which are dysregulated in lung cancer at the actual site of disease. So within the body, within the tumor microenvironment. And so we can take these nanoparticles and administer them to um, the individual via uh, inhalation. And after they are inhaled, they will travel into the lungs. And at the site of disease where these proteolytic enzymes are dysregulated, those enzymes will interact uh, with the nanoparticles to perform these cleavage reactions. And as a result of these cleavage events, um, there are these short barcodes, which, we can, which we've termed synthetic biomarkers, that are released from the nanoparticles. And mm. they then enter the circulation. And what's really neat um, is, a, is a cool physiological and pharmacokinetic trick that we leverage by designing these barcodes to be very small. So short, shorter than five nanometers in length. And as a result of this, uh, their small size, they will actually very efficiently um, filter into the urine. And as a result of that, we can then um, measure the concentration of these synthetic biomarkers, these barcoded reporters in the urine, and use that to um, build a machine learning classifier that can then um, be prospectively ap applied to achieve a, a diagnosis. Wow, that sounds fascinating. So is it true that there are certain known or well-understood proteases that you are then looking for that are very clearly linked to presence of this cancer? That's a great question. And this, in fact, was um, another area in which we utilized tools from data science and machine learning. And so our first step in sort of this whole engineering pipeline was to actually, yeah, to do exactly what you mentioned, to identify which proteases may be viable targets um, to, to actually measure. And so to address this, we looked at several transcriptomic data sets, specifically RNA-seq data sets from both uh, human lung cancer patients, as well as um, uh, mouse models of lung cancer. And we analyzed uh, these data sets to nominate a panel of candidate proteases that are overexpressed in um, lung cancer. And then we designed our nanoparticles to be responsive to those proteases that we um, nominated on the basis of this transcriptomic analysis. Very interesting. I would love to hear then how, once you've detected this in the urine, you can actually build and train a classifier to predict whether an individual has this type of cancer. Yes. So what's really neat um, is 
what we can do is we can multiplex many of these different nanoparticles together and each of these nanoparticles will carry a unique um, peptide and barcode pair so it can measure um, the activity of a distinct set of enzymes or a distinct enzyme within the tumor microenvironment. And so what that results in is that our urine measurement um, is, you know, a matrix of several different features where each of these features corresponds to a unique peptide substrate and also a unique reporter, a unique barcode. So if we measure 20 of these different barcodes in the urine, each of which reflects um, the activity of different proteases within the tumor microenvironment, we take those uh, measurements, and then this is the data that we actually train um, our machine learning classifiers on. Uh, and that um, those resulting classifiers can then be apply to an independent test cohort of, of individuals. In our case, in, in this work, since it, we were working with preclinical mouse models, these are um, you know, independent uh, urine samples from independent mice. And as a result, then we can apply that classifier to those sets of measurements um, to perform the classification of whether or not that sample belonged to a, a mouse that's likely to have lung cancer or a mouse that is healthy. Okay, got it. So there's a suite of proteases that you've identified. And then when you are trying to classify the output, I'm guessing is the prediction of whether or not either binary or maybe on a continuous spectrum, uh, a given mouse or a given human has this disease. So um, in this particular project, the barcodes that we measured in the urine are, in, are themselves peptides, and we measure them using mass spectrometry. Then we have a matrix of the concentration of each of these barcodes, each of these 14 barcodes, across all the mice that we analyzed or assessed. And each of these mice were administered um, the inhaled nanoparticles. And so we administer the nanoparticles, collect the urine um, sometime after that administration, and then measure the concentration of these barcodes in the urine using mass spectrometry. And so that's the um, data that's input into our, in this case, it was a, a random forest classifier. And um, after we completed the training step, we took the resulting model and fed in, you know, a similar matrix of uh, measurements of these barcodes across different mice, except in this case, we, you know, we do not supervise the labels of whether each individual mouse is a, is a healthy mouse or a diseased mouse. And in this case, when we perform the classification, the model outputs a probability um, assigning the likelihood that that urine sample from that mouse um, belong is is indicative of lung cancer. Got it. Got it. So you end up with a more continuous readout. That makes sense given the biology of what is actually happening. Yeah, 
what was really interesting was that we were um, able to, we did these experiments and these classifications at different time points um, across the progression of the tumors in these um, mouse models. And what was neat about the mouse models was that um, they were two genetically engineered models of lung adenocarcinoma that we leveraged in this work. And mm -hmm. what that means is that the tumors um, will arise and develop in the lungs in a way that progresses, that mimics the progression of human disease. And the reason that these um, tumors uh, arise is due to genetic um, mutations that are commonly found in human lung cancer and in these models can actually drive the progression of tumor development in the mice. And what we were able to see was that our classifiers could um, detect the presence of lung tumors at a relatively early stage, at the point at which um, the average tumor volume was approximately 2.7 millimeters cubed um, across the lungs of the mice. And to give context for that estimate, that equates to sort of the, the approximate volume that would be represented when you have a diameter that's about the size of the head of a pin. So the tumor wow. burden in these mice was pretty low, um, which was really encouraging. It really sounds like there are quite a few traditional hurdles that exist in developing diagnostics, and you have addressed a lot of them. And just to list a couple that it's that you've described so far, one is that it's non-invasive. So if there's something that's inhaled, it's really as easy as it gets right now to insert something into human or mouse's system. And then another one that you've pointed out is the ability to specifically target proteases or biomarkers that have been shown to be very specific to the disease of interest. So your false positive rate is hopefully low and also your sensitivity is high. And then the final one that you just mentioned is really the ability to detect this early on. I know that in cancer, many of the cases go unnoticed for so long and simply diagnosing somebody earlier could lead to a positive outcome. So it's really powerful work. Are there other hurdles that you have found that you've been able to overcome using this data-first approach? Well, first I'll say that I think those um, three points that you just mentioned were, you know, kind of spot on in terms of what our goals were going into this work. And so I, I really appreciate that, that you recognize that. So thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'll address your question and touch on one of those three points a little further, and that's this point of specificity. And I think um, the data-first approach that we leveraged really enabled us to, to achieve that performance metric. Specifically, um, we also did experiments where we looked at the um, urine signatures that we were able to measure in these mice not only in lung cancer, but also in states of benign lung inflammation. And so, as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest problems with imaging-based um, tests for lung cancer detection is their false positive rate. And so we really wanted to see how 
you know, we can combine this aspect of taking a functional measurement of protease activity in the disease microenvironment and coupling that with machine learning to drive the specificity of our diagnostic. And what we found was that um, the, the signatures of protease dysregulation that we were able to pick up on were very different in comparing um, the in comparing lung cancer mice from mice that had benign inflammation of the lungs. And ultimately what we were able to do was we were able to train a classifier that could distinguish lung cancer bearing mice um, from those mice that were either healthy or had this benign inflammatory state with very high accuracy, um, up to 95 to 97% accuracy. Um, wow. So that was really, really encouraging to us. And I think that was, that result specifically was powered by the fact that we multiplex many of these nanoparticle sensors together and ultimately use this um, measurement across these 14 different uh, features corresponding to 14 different protease substrates to train a statistical classifier. Absolutely. This sounds like a very neat success story of merging machine learning and data-driven approaches with a real clinical impact and addressing a question that actually does hopefully change the paradigm of lung cancer diagnosis in this case. Thank you. I want to switch gears to another project that you have done outside of class, and this is the deep learning course that you have really made robust at MIT and and which I think has become famous at this point. (laughs) What motivated you to spend time developing the course and what lessons have you learned about both learning and teaching deep learning, even to audiences that maybe wouldn't have been exposed before through this course? Yeah, so as as you mentioned, for the past three years, um, I've been teaching this class at MIT, Introduction to Deep Learning, and I've taught it together with another fellow graduate student, Alexander Amini. And we were really motivated to develop this course um, because both of us are using machine learning in our own research. Um, in my case, diagnostics and biotechnology, as we've sort of been discussing. And for Alexander, uh, robotics and the control of autonomous systems. And so we recognized that there was a need for a foundational course in deep learning. And not only that, but we wanted to take, you know, that sort of um, that sort of need, that sort of um, working framework and transform it into, into something more and to develop it into something that would prepare students to do, you know, like we were, like we are doing in our own work, to have the tools, um, the machine learning and deep learning tools that would equip them to apply these approaches in their own research, their own work, and whatever, um, and their own careers moving forward. And that I think has really guided how we've developed the curriculum over the past three years, sort of in terms of the content we choose to include, how we structure uh, the class, 
the the lecture materials and a lot of different um, design decisions that we've made have been driven by this motivation to couple foundational uh, conceptual knowledge with understanding of practical skills and the ability to take that knowledge and apply it to what you know what one is passionate about absolutely well Ava, it's been fantastic having you here to talk about deep learning, to talk about your work in developing novel diagnostics, and talk about the intersection of the two. Thanks for the work that you're doing, and thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a true pleasure. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.